This is Planet Money from NPR. Last week, I called up a listener named Ian Linder Sheldon. And when I got him on the phone, he was socially distanced. Yeah, actually, I'm at a public park doing my online college classes. So my parents are at risk. So uh, I got to make sure everyone's okay. This is what's become of Ian's freshman year at Florida International University. And he's got a lot of time now to think about meaningful places he can no longer go physically. So the the pizza spot he hung out at in high school, the the burger joint he walks to from his house called Burger Bob's. Not to be confused, he says, with the popular cartoon. It's not Bob's Burgers, Burger Bob's. Okay, Burger Bob's. It's uh, so old, my grandfather used to go there. I, if, that, if that place disappears, that's, that's my whole childhood. Where Are you on their website now? Yeah, I am putting in my billing address. Ian has set aside about $100 to try and help these restaurants survive. And while we talked, he, he bought a $25 gift card to that high school pizza place. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of sad. I'm sending it to myself. So it's <laughs> to Ian from Ian. There's something like that really encapsulates the moment there. The isolation of sending yourself a gift card. Yeah. But here's a question, and this question was submitted by you, the listeners. Is doing this gift card buying thing even really going to make a dent in the problem? Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Kenny Malone. And today on the show, your questions on everything from stock market shutdowns to toilet paper shortages. How would the government actually send us all money? Why don't businesses get scolded like we do when it comes to emergency savings? And of course gift cards. Planet Money has a newsletter straight to your inbox. It's just the right amount of economics weekly. Go to npr.org slash newsletter. All right. Our first question today comes from a listener named Lauren Shindo. How can I help the local businesses that I would normally be going to if I didn't have to stay at home? Can I buy gift cards? Are there any other ideas or things that I can do to help out those people who are not going to be making the same income? Yeah, this is a big one. And and there's sort of two approaches here. There's the donation approach. Uh, You can find a reputable charity doing good work right now. There are also emergency funds being set up for laid off workers. And then there's the consumer approach. You can still get takeout or delivery or place an online order from your favorite shop or restaurant to show support. But Lauren mentions this gift card idea in specific. And in normal times, gift cards are a huge pet peeve of economists and financial types. Sure. My name is John Paul Koning, and uh, I write about finance and money and gift cards. John Paul writes the Moneyness blog, and back in August, he was looking through the financial filings of Starbucks, and mixed in with the traditional kinds of loans that Starbucks had taken out was this huge number, $1.6 billion of this jargony-sounding kind of debt. Their stored value card liability. And you were like, what is that? Yeah, I was quite curious. Stored value card liability is gift cards. Technically, every gift card is like a teeny loan, and we are giving Starbucks $1.6 billion in teeny loans. And how good are the terms on those loans? Well, first of all, it's a 0% loan from your customer. And uh, secondly, a lot of these loans never actually get paid off. So, like, 
I lend Starbucks money and then never actually sort of call that entire loan in. Or your friend didn't because you might have given it to a friend and there's a good chance your friend would have lost it or your mother or whoever you gave it to. When you start to think about a gift card as a mini loan from you to a company, they are a terrible deal for you and an amazing deal for the company in normal times. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, got some boxes and some products going on here. Sophie Madison is in Boston, frantically packing up some online orders at her shop, Olives and Grace, where she sells everything from Boston-made candy to Tom Brady football candles. And before she shut her physical store down, one customer came in looking worried and said to her, I want to buy a gift card. And then I said, "Okay, how much would you like that for? And she just paused for a minute and she said a thousand dollars a thousand dollars a thousand dollars like she is very worried about you yeah yeah right you know it didn't feel like the warm fuzzy thousand dollar in-store purchase it felt like you know here's a hug let's hunker down here's some seed money it was a real love and support gesture Small businesses are, are waiting for emergency loans from the state and federal government. But in the meantime, customers have realized that there is already a way to hand out a loan, buying a gift card. Those gift cards are a very generous 0% loan, and in normal times, that is the worst thing about gift cards. But right now, that is what makes them particularly useful, until much, much bigger help can arrive. Which brings us to our next question about one of the biggest, most expensive ideas being debated by our lawmakers right now, literally cutting checks to Americans to help them through this. People have got a lot of questions about this, and so we've brought in Greg Rosalski. He writes Planet Money's newsletter. Hello, Greg. Hey, Kenny. So, Greg, we know that the details of direct payments are getting hammered out. Will money go to everybody? What will the exact amount be? We don't, we don't know those details yet, but... You were able to track down The Economist, who is generally credited for getting this idea moving in the first place. Yeah, so his name is Jason Furman. He's an economist at Harvard. He's also the former head of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. And his story is really the story of how dramatically everything has changed in Washington over the last few weeks. I was sitting at home one morning. My two older children had gone off to school with my wife, and I was sitting with my four-year-old. Kids like running off to school feels like like a different universe ago. This is un it's unbelievable. Yeah, this was only a few weeks ago. This was early March. At the time, Jason was first seeing coronavirus cases popping up in the United States. He's seeing what's happening in Italy. And he's worried not just about the public health crisis, but what it'll do to the economy. I sat down and in about one hour um, wrote the op-ed for the Wall Street Journal and then got my four-year-old to school about half an hour late. You know, I, I read this op-ed and I feel like this was the moment that I realized, like, uh-oh, maybe this is going to be bigger than I thought. He proposed what, like a like some $350 billion stimulus package or something like that. Yeah, there, there were a lot of ideas in his plan, but, but the part of the op-ed that really caught everybody's attention was this one thing. Jason called for a one-time payment to basically every American and their kids. Yeah, I propose $1,000 for an adult, $500 for a child. I thought um, that something around a percent and a half of GDP made the most sense. And those were round numbers, and they happened to get you to about the total 
that I wanted to get to. Jason admits this wasn't an exact science. Also, that he didn't invent the idea of the government sending people stimulus checks. But it is a policy that is pretty rare for the government to do. He says part of the reason why he suggested it was to open people's eyes to the fact that we were about to get into a serious economic crisis. But it didn't seem like a lot of people in government were taking his ideas seriously. The president's economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, got asked on television what he thought of my idea. He said something to the effect of, Jason Furman is my friend, but, and followed it with, um, you know, the the idea that something much more limited uh, needed to happen. But then public events started to cancel, schools closed, restaurants and bars shut down. It became clear that something big needed to get done. And sort of surprisingly, Senator Mitt Romney kind of comes out basically endorsing Furman's idea that we need to send checks to everyone. He even used Jason's amount, $1,000. Within days, President Donald Trump himself says, yep, we're going to need to send people checks. I was at home in Cambridge. Um, This time, all three of my children were there uh, because none of them were going to school. (laughs) And I think I saw it come in over over Twitter. Huh, and how did that feel? You know, I was excited that he was embracing it. So Greg, we know at this point that that lawmakers are talking about a potentially 2 trillion dollar federal aid and stimulus package, including some version of Jason's idea of direct payments to Americans. And one of the questions we've gotten is how would this work logistically? Like how does the government get you that money? How, how do they even find you? Yeah, so we can look at the last time we did a version of this, which was back in 2008. The IRS has people's information from income taxes. Right. So they can cut you a check or put money in your bank account. For those who haven't paid federal income taxes, they'll probably have to fill out a form to get a check. In 2008, it took three months for the first round to go out. I've been speaking to a lot of people. I'm confident we can do it a lot more quickly this time. It's very hard. But it's probably administratively easier than just about anything else that we're going to do in the economic response to coronavirus. On Friday, President Trump said at a press conference that he supports sending Americans much more than $1,000 and that we might need to send checks multiple times. Jason's on board with this, too. The most important thing we can do is to do a lot and to do it fast. Cash to people help to state governments, and whatever we need to do to cushion the blow um, for businesses and, most importantly, their employees. Second, this shouldn't be all that we do. We should expand unemployment insurance. We should expand nutritional assistance. We should increase um, aid to states that are bearing the brunt of this. There's a lot of different facets of the response. All right. So that is now where Jason Furman stands, the the guy arguably behind sending everybody checks for this particular crisis. Greg, thank you for tracking him down. Thanks for having me, Kenny. All right. Next up, we've got Planet Money's Robert Smith. Hello, Robert. Kenny Malone. All right. So, Robert, we brought you in to answer a question from listener Andrew Fujiyoshi. I was wondering why the markets can't halt trading for a longer period of time during the COVID-19 pandemic. What would the consequences be? Uh, Listen, 
I'm 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 with this person emotionally. I watch the stock market all day long. <laughs> the stock markets are plunging. Uh, it's creating all this anxiety. Why don't we just shut them down? And that is what I yell back at my screen all day long. Just close it down. Just stop it. Make it stop. And, and it's it's clear that there are some kinds of circuit breakers for it to temporarily stop. So it it does seem reasonable that there could be something in place to make it stop for longer periods of time. Yeah, they developed the circuit breakers after Black Monday in uh, 1987. They're like, oh, like once the market really starts to sell off, there's all these psychological factors and people are selling first and thinking later, right? So they developed this system whereby if the market goes down a certain percentage, they'd give everybody a timeout. Just like, take a breather. I want you to stop. Meditate. <laughs> think. Stop with the itchy trigger finger. This is the idea. And the first time they used this in 1997 was the Asian financial crisis. And they tried it the first time. And the traders spent the 15 minutes filling out sell orders. They're like, oh, good. I can sell even more. <laughs> and then when trading started oh. again, it plunged even more and they and they stopped it for the day. And so it had sort of a mixed effect. I, I will say there there was a time where stopping the stock market made absolute sense. And this was after 9-11 in 2001. Sure. Uh, the stock market people couldn't go to because it was in lower Manhattan. And, and frankly, a lot of the trading firms had people who had died in that terrorist attack. And it was such a horrible situation. They closed it for a week. But there was a real question at the time. I remember this, like, what's going to happen when they open it? Are they going to open it and all this pent-up fear and anger and dread? Is this just going to flood the market? Well, th there was a large sell-off. But you know what? They had an, a fairly normal day. And everyone said, like, oh, thank goodness. And from then on, they kept the stock market open. So let me ask you point blank then. Why would we not? shut the market down now? Is it something anyone's thinking about? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly been brought up and people have asked the, the president and the treasury secretary Mnuchin about this. But there's there's a couple different reasons. I mean, one of them is is sort of technical, which is, you know, it's not just stocks trading in the United States of America. Stocks trade all around the world, in London, in Europe, in, in Australia, in Japan, in China, in Hong Kong. And so, they're trading 24 hours a day. So if you could close the market here, but if you really want to sell things, you can sell things all night long. You know, you can you can take out your fear and anxiety around the world. So that's sort of the, the technical reason why we probably should not shut down the markets. But there's this other bigger idea, which is think for a moment like what a stock transaction is. When we talk about the stock markets, what we're talking about yeah. are hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of individual deals. There's somebody who doesn't want a stock, who is afraid of the risk of a company that they own a part of, and they're selling it to someone yeah. who wants that risk, who has an optimistic view of the future, who thinks that, oh, uh, I'll take that stock of Boeing, I will take that stock of GE, because I have a different point of view, I'm willing to take the risk. And that's kind of like, that's a good thing to happen even in times where people are afraid. And I will, I will say one more thing, which is we're at a moment here where there is, I feel like there's not enough information about what's happening in the world. And the stock yeah. market, the price of a stock is pure information. That is the consensus number of hundreds of thousands of people on what a company is worth right now. And these are people, professionals, very smart people who spend all day long thinking, well, how crippled is Boeing 
during this time? Uh, how strong is Amazon going to come out of this? And through consensus, through the market, they come up with a price. Now, I don't like the price because it's it's low and it causes me pain, but that is information, and I think more information is better. Okay. Robert Smith, not going to shut down the stock market tomorrow if you had the magic <laughs> the magic gavel. Is that right? Oh, I would sleep better if they did, but I, it's probably not the best thing. All right. Thanks, Robert. You're welcome. After the break, breakdowns in the markets for toilet paper and commercial paper. Are you sometimes confused by the economy, befuddled by the financial system, troubled by the trade war? We are here to help. With a daily 10-minute briefing on economic news of the day, NPR's The Indicator from Planet Money. Listen now. All right. For this uh, next question, we have brought in producer extraordinaire Alexi Horowitz-Ghazi. Hello, Kenny. Hello. Tell me what you've been looking into. This question comes from listener Carol Lucking. She lives in the town of Spearfish, South Dakota. Okay. I called Carol up and she told me that, you know, out there, the coronavirus pandemic doesn't quite feel as present yet as it might for, for those of us in more urban parts of the country. It feels like we're a little bit insulated. Um, a lot of restaurants are doing mostly takeout, but things aren't shut down like I know the local Irish pub had a huge blowout on St. Patrick's Day, Uh-oh. which was a little horrifying. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think some people are taking it seriously and other people aren't. But there's no toilet paper. For sure, there's no toilet paper. So so she's saying that, that even in not taking it seriously enough spearfish South Dakota, the run on toilet paper has happened. It has reached even spearfish. My question it was, what is the deal with toilet paper? Who started this toilet paper hoarding or where did it start? And then part two of Carol's question, is it possible that this whole national toilet paper run will actually affect our toilet paper supply? That's yeah, that is a big one. We've been getting a version of that from from lots and lots of people. So what have you what have you found here? Okay, so the first part of this question, where did this whole toilet paper hoarding thing start? Yes. Some of the earliest reports of this kind of uh, shopping behavior came from Hong Kong uh, a little okay. bit over a month ago. That makes sense. That's close to where the virus started. That's right. And, you know, there were, there were a bunch of headlines from there. There was even one story about a, a group of armed robbers who, who uh, pulled off a toilet paper heist there. An armed toilet paper heist. Yeah. So there were all sorts of, you know, headlines on toilet paper hoarding there. But then it just started to grow a bit. I see. And, and so I, I'm guessing as the virus spreads to Japan and then Singapore and Australia and, and then eventually the U.S., like all of these countries have seen headlines about coronavirus and toilet paper shortages. And so it, it is just now common prepping behavior to include toilet paper on your hoarding list. Yeah, that, that seems to be part of it. And, you know, that kind of makes sense to some degree. You, you know, you want to minimize the number of times you're going to have to leave your house and go be in a crowded grocery store. Yeah, yeah. But the problem is people are buying like several years worth of toilet paper, way more than they need. Yes. This brings us to, to part two of Carol's question, which is, will all of this erratic behavior, semi-erratic behavior affect the actual supply of toilet paper in the long run? Yes, that's right. And and so to answer that question, you basically need to look at the normal toilet paper market. Sure. I spoke to Willie Shi about this. He teaches supply chains and manufacturing at Harvard Business School. If you think about toilet paper, the demand is very stable. It's not like the holiday season, you use more toilet paper or for birthday celebrations, you use more toilet paper. You know, toilet paper demand is 
proportional to how many people are in the population. Willie says that the problem that we're seeing basically is that we are seeing people panic buying from a supply chain that's designed for just a really slow, steady demand. Sure, you can, you know, run your plants a little uh, harder, maybe you run them a little faster, uh, but you have all these bottlenecks like I need trucking capacity to move it from my factories to the distribution centers and from distributions into the centers into stores. And this is why people are still finding empty shelves every once in a while at the grocery store. Okay, that makes sense to me, sure. That's that's the bad news. Okay. The good news is that toilet paper has a relatively short and localized supply chain. So that means it's made pretty close to where it's bought and consumed. For instance, one economist told me that around 90% of our toilet paper is made here in the United States, mm-hmm. which means the supply chain may have hiccups here and there, but all these worldwide border closings are not going to affect the toilet paper supply for most of us. Okay. Now, one interesting thing Willie she wanted to talk about was that all these people who are hoarding toilet paper right now, who are stockpiling, they're not actually going to be using any more toilet paper going forward. There's going to come a time when this passes, and if you bought a five-year supply, you're not going to buy toilet paper again for a long time. So inevitably, this kind of uh, hoarding and stockpiling will be followed by a period of lower demand. Willie Shee says toilet paper manufacturers just need to keep in mind that if they ramp up production today, there's a lull coming tomorrow, or whenever the pandemic is over anyway. Alexi Horowitz-Ghazi, thank you very much. Thank you, Kenny. All right, for our final question, we have Mary Childs. Hello, Mary. Hi. You're here to answer a question that I, I like. This is the thing I've been thinking about a lot in these last couple of weeks, and it is that like we are told this advice from financial types that we as individuals need to be responsible. We need to have like three months worth of cash on hand to cover our expenses for three months. But but like businesses are not being told this. They they are not required to have three months of stuff on hand. That that seems unfair and unsafe or something. So we actually got a few questions like this. And to be fair, many companies do have a lot of cash sitting around kind of just for times like this. But the short answer is companies basically always have access to vast amounts of money. And we generally don't. Yes, that must be nice. And actually, that access, that whole system nearly broke down last week. It froze up and it nearly imploded which would have taken down like entire corporations. Thousands of people would have gone without paychecks. It was a real near miss. Yeah, this was this near catastrophe that that didn't make quite enough headlines. Totally. I think that's because it happened in this like one little corner of the financial market. Um, So to understand all of this, I'm going to introduce you to this guy, John McCulley. He works at this money manager called Columbia Threadneedle. And he works in that little corner in what's called the commercial paper market, a phrase you will understand very shortly. I've been doing this now for 35 years. You know, I remember the stock market crash in 87. I remember the 9-11 events and then obviously the 2008 financial crisis. So John's job, he gets into the office every morning and sits down at his desk with his million computer screens in front of him. (laughs) And he buys and sells little teeny weeny loans to companies. Three month loans, maybe six month, maybe nine month, maybe usually not. So like I, I run, let's say, Kenny Malone Mattress Incorporated and uh, I don't have any cash on hand, but that's that's fine. I'll pay my employees by like going to these 
lenders and saying, give me a 30-day tiny loan and then I'll pay my employees. Exactly. You basically don't have to fret. John is always there for you. And there are actually thousands of people like John fighting each other to try to give Kenny Mattress Company those loans because they want that interest payment. And I know that you might be thinking, like, this sounds kind of scary. That sounds like a lot of lending money flying back and forth, like people Mm -hmm. yelling on the phone. Yes. (laughs) But This is not that. This is actually the most stable, most boring part of financial markets. It moves by like teeny weeny little fractions of a percentage point at a time. Like it is sleepy. So much so that John says he gets made fun of for his job. They always tease me that I'm the, you know, to use a football analogy, that I'm the long snapper of the fixed income trading desk, you know. I have no idea what Um, that means. uh, The long snapper is the guy, he, he only comes in to snap the ball back to the punter so the punter can punt the ball down the field, right? So the guy comes in maybe six times a game, you know? Yes. Okay. So all very boring, very stable. And I guess what that means for like Kenny Malone Mattresses Incorporated is that why would I have a well of money when there is this boring, stable, reliable river of money that I can always dip into? That is the commercial paper market. Exactly. So the whole premise of this market is that three months is not a very long time in the loan market. That is the blink of an eye. So if you think that Kenny Malone Mattress Company is a good company today, in three months, it's probably going to be still a good company. But in the past few weeks, the speed of the coronavirus outbreak and the economic shutdown that followed, all of that has been so fast and so drastic that people like John all of a sudden could not in good faith buy these loans anymore. Kenny Mattress Company may be a great company, but we just don't know what's going to happen. Right. You don't know if I'm going to have to send everyone home tomorrow, let alone where the company will be in three months. Exactly. Three months suddenly becomes a really long time. So last Monday, John walked into his basically empty office and he sat down at his desk with his million computer screens and the entire market was in total disarray. Prices were moving so fast that nobody could keep up. There were emails stacking up and there were all sorts of chats buzzing and phone calls. Everybody's kind of coming to that, oh my God, moment at the same time. It's kind of an alone feeling to begin with. And then when I was sitting in the office with, with two or three other people, it, it, it really kind of made, <clears throat> made you feel like you were all alone. John looks at all this and he's like, uh, no, I am not touching this. This is insane. I can't even be sure these companies will be around in three months to pay back these loans. But the day after John's scary moment in the office, the Fed makes this big announcement. They are reopening this thing from the financial crisis called the Commercial Paper Funding Facility. And basically it just says, John, don't worry. We are buying alongside you. We are right here There's always going to be a buyer. You don't need to sweat if Kenny Malone Mattress Company starts going south and you want to sell that paper. We're right here. We're going to buy up some of this paper just the same as you. And suddenly that means John doesn't need to be scared. He's not alone anymore. And in essence, what? Like that, I guess that that river of, of money starts flowing again. Businesses can start dipping into it again, hopefully. Exactly. And this was a big sigh of relief. This was this big moment. And... The reason the Federal Reserve is getting involved here is, well, one, they plan to get their money back with interest. Once the market is stabilized, it should just go back to being pretty easy peasy, stable money. And in the financial crisis, when the Fed did similar things, they made a ton of money. Hmm. So that's all kind of one reason why a corporate bailout is different from bailing out regular people, which was the question we started with. Yeah, it's true. Right. Like in the U.S., corporations just have better protections than people do. 
we make right. sure that companies can function. And there is, of course, a rationale for that, right? Like companies employ thousands of people. And so if they suddenly run into trouble and can't pay those employees, that has huge ramifications. It still feels kind of unfair, but that's what we got. So sorry. Mary Childs, thank you so much. Thank you. Listen, things are happening so fast, and it helps us tremendously to know what you want to know. What are you hearing that you need explained? Who is the person you want to hear from on our show? Please keep sending your questions to planetmoney at npr.org, or you can find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We are generally at Planet Money. We got so many questions, so many incredible stories. We read every single one of them, and we will keep doing these segments. Today's show was produced by Alexi Horowitz-Ghazi, Liza Yeager, and Darian Woods with help from James Sneed. Alex Goldmark is our supervising producer. Bryant Erstat edits the show. I'm Kenny Malone. This is NPR. Thanks for listening. <laughs>